You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Thank you, everyone, for coming. We're glad you're joining us online. We're glad you're here in person. What a beautiful day. Uh, It's nice. Woo, yeah. It's nice to uh, have some AC on days like this, isn't it? Yes, it is. All right, so I'm extra loud, and compared to whoever is normally on this microphone, I'm speaking quieter than normal even right now, so I'm going to get louder, Jay. Um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of in the middle of a series. We're moving from Genesis now into the book of Revelation, um, and we our series has been called Garden to City. For those of you who have been following us or been here most Sundays, Garden to City, where did humanity begin? We began in this garden situation. We see that in the book of Genesis. And, of course, we've walked almost all the way through Genesis now. The story of Joseph we just kind of finished up with yesterday or yesterday, last week. And, uh, and now we're going to be stepping into the book of Revelation and, and walking through where does humanity end? What is God looking for? Why, why, is, why are we in this process, first of all? And what is God doing from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation? And so we're going to pick up some there, but I'm actually going to start today still in Genesis. I, I, I pre-warned you last week that I would, uh, and maybe all those people aren't here and you're a wholly, completely different group of people, um, but I'm going to talk about tithing a little bit today. And the reason for this is, you know, first off, let me say this. If we shy away from subjects just because they're uncomfortable, it usually doesn't fare well with actually coming to a good, whole truth idea about that subject. If we're just afraid to talk about something, and I know in today's world, unfortunately, it seems like we're losing the ability to just have conversation, right? It's like everybody feels attacked by everything you disagree with. Well, let's not do that, right, even in the church. And, and I would say, we're gonna, so we're gonna talk about money today, which Jesus talked about quite a bit. And I wanna say this up front. I understand why talking about money is uncomfortable. One, and I want to say this before anything else, is the church hasn't done the best job in portraying to the world a good stewardship of money. And that's not a judgment on everyone, but it is a judgment on some. (laughs) And you can just Google that and figure it out for yourself. But I would say that if if we're looking um, around at the church world in general and the, the idea of money and prosperity comes to really prosper just a select few, uh, I think that's wrong. And we talked about the promise, right, in Genesis. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, over Joseph. The promise is that what? I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the nations. It was never meant, money coming into the church world or even into our own pockets in our life, it was never meant to stay in our pockets, It was meant to go out to the world, to bless the world. And we saw with the story of Joseph last week, it says to bless the families of the world. I love just even that picture. So we don't want to shy away from money because, unfortunately, it is how the world kind of spins. It's the idea of resource. We're going to talk about that. But we have to acknowledge that there has been misuse, and we see it all through the Bible, you know, the idea of compiling money for ourselves, we've, it's just something that we've struggled with as humanity. So that's what I'm going to kind of hit, and we're going to go into the book of Revelation with that, all right? Are you okay? 
All right, so let's start in Genesis 14, uh, verse 17 through 20. This kind of interesting story takes place, and I'll just give you a little backdrop. So here we are, Genesis 14. Uh, we're back now in Abraham's life. Abraham has left, you know, the, the place of his father's. And he is now going to wherever God's telling him to go. And he's trying to follow this, this God, the God of the universe, you know, the one who's speaking to him, telling him what to do. And he brings Lot with him, right, his, his, uh, his nephew Lot. And Lot gets into some trouble. Lot gets basically captured by some people. Uh, some, this other kind of, they would say a nation, but it was really just a tribe, comes and takes Lot, takes all of, uh, you know, the, the women, takes all their goods. And someone comes and tells Abraham, hey, this is what just happened to Lot. Well, the story goes on. Abraham takes a bunch of men. They go. They attack the, the raiders. They get everything back, right? So they, there's this kind of war situation that takes place. And then we see this victory moment that comes. And I want to read through that victory moment. This is where the first time we see this idea of tithing. Does anybody know what tithing means? can say words in here. It's okay. Anybody? Tenth. It means 10%. Now, I don't want to be rude, but if I've heard people say, well, I just tithe 5%. I'm like, you can't tenth a fifth. It doesn't work that way. Um, now, I'm not trying to be rude about it because the truth is I'm going to get to a place today to tell you <laughs> tithing isn't a law. I don't believe it's a law. I don't believe that tithing is something that we have to do because sometimes what happens when we think there's laws in Christianity, we look at them as levers. We think, I put my money in, I pull a lever, I get something back. That is absolutely the opposite of following Jesus. And so tithing, sometimes the, the, the church has preached tithing in this way where it's like, oh, you give and God gives back to you. Now there's a truth in that, but we act as if it's some sort of lever outside of a relationship with him. It's like, oh, as long as I'm giving my 10%, then I'm in good standing with God. But if I don't give my 10%, if I only give my 9 or 5% or whatever I have, then I'm probably not going to be in good standing. That's not how it works. But there is a principle in this idea of tithing that we need to talk about. And I want to start right from the beginning of where we see that in this story. So there's this victory moment with Abram. He's not actually Abraham yet, starting in verse 17. So we'll, we'll read there. Chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 17. After Abram returned from his victory over, uh, yep, long name, and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High brought Abram some bread and wine, and Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. So this is the, we don't, we, we don't hear anything about this guy Melchizedek until this moment. And we look at this guy, whoever he is, wherever he comes from, and we see two things that take place that is extremely rare in the Old Testament. One is he's a king and he's a priest. We only see one other person really in the Old Testament even slightly act like that, and that's David, right? 
we see David has some sort of special allowance where he can go into you know, the, the, where the presence of God is on the Ark of Covenant. He's all the other, you know, and before that, if you went into the presence of God and you weren't the priest, you were in big trouble. But David, as a king, and almost acts as a priest, but then we see that later with Jesus. And then what do we hear actually after that? We hear that we are a royal priesthood. It's this kind of four you know, ideal, like showing you there's, there's an ideal that's in God's eyes where a priest is the person who can come before God. But what happens after that is we set up a priesthood and we set up a big curtain and then we set up all these things between humanity and God and we have to go to someone else that can go to God for us. But yet when we come to Jesus, we get to go back to what that design was, which is we're allowed to approach God and we're royalty because we're his children. And we're seeing this in Melchizedek, which is really kind of rare and out of place for the time period. In fact, we don't even really know of any established religion, right? Because the established Israelite Hebrew religion doesn't really come in until almost Moses' time. And even then, they only describe this religion now of following the God of the Most High by saying the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They can't say that yet. So this is the God, uh, this guy works, in a sense, for the God of the Most High. And it says, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Verse 21, the king of Sodom, now, if you know anything about the Bible, we know Sodom's not a great place, right? It says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who are captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten and request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies. So there's this moment where Abram has all of these goods, all of the you know, stuff from the war. And he comes and he meets Melchizedek and he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek. But then we have this other king. And what does he say? You may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Now I think we see the reason for tithing and the principle of tithing all happen right in this verse here. We see this idea where Abram decides to give a tenth to somebody else that's representing the God most high. So he's giving this to God. But yet there's this other voice that immediately comes. And this voice says, oh, you can keep for yourself all the goods. You see, really from the beginning of time, and I would say if you try to boil down all sin to a motivation... This is the motivation, selfishness. We want for ourselves the best. Let's go back now in your, your scriptures just to Genesis 4. We'll go to another quick story that shows this. This is a story of Cain and Abel presenting a gift to God. It says in verse 3 of chapter 4, it says, When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs 
from his flock. And we see later that it says God rejects Cain's offering, but he accepts Abel's. And this question we should pose yourself, why would he do that? Why would he reject the crops that, that Cain brings, but he likes what Abel brought? Is it just that God likes meat more than vegetables? Arguable. <laughs> That's a joke. You can laugh there. No, the, the idea here is God is looking at the motivation of what's taking place. You see, it just says that Cain brought some. But what we see with Abel is in his heart, he brought the best, the first. And we see this, you know, now that this story with Melchizedek, that before anything else happens, he, give, he gives this 10%, this 10th of everything he got to this guy who, who represents God in that moment, but yet there's this other voice that's saying, oh, you can keep for yourself all the goods. I think this is the same struggle we have had for all eternity. It's a struggle with selfishness. Every one of us fights against it. Every day we wake up and you want to know the first person you think about? It's you. You get up and you probably look in the mirror and you're like, wow, ooh, I need a shower. Then you get out of the shower and you spend how much time in the mirror? Or you step on the scale. Did I lose anything today? And we constantly have a life that really is framed around looking at ourselves. And so there's this idea that we struggle with this humanity that we're always thinking about ourselves, usually first before anyone else and even before God. And so when I look at tithing, and we're going to get into this idea, I know that some people push it as a law. And if you look at all of those scripture references I've put in your notes, this is where it becomes law, right? We see it in Leviticus and Numbers and in Chronicles and Nehemiah, Malachi. We see all these kind of pushed law system type things. But we know we get to Jesus, and we're not living under the law anymore. That law was meant to teach us something, but it was not meant to actually hold us to it. Because actually, when we get to Jesus, I'll tell you this. This is what's harder. If you struggle with 10%, you're going to really struggle with what Jesus wants, which is everything. And that was the whole point. The whole point was this 10% idea was this constant reminder. When I come and give on a Sunday, it's really just a constant practice to fight against my own selfishness. It's a practice within me to say, this is actually just enough to hurt so that I remember where my actual provision comes from. So that I can actually put my heart into this basket, not my money. Because that's what's really happening. When we give on Sundays, it's not about the money. Now, of course, the money needs to, for this whole thing to exist, right? I mean, we have nice chairs. We have AC today because of it. And, and we get to send teams across the world because of it. So the money is for a useful purpose. But the truth is God is not really interested in the amount that you're giving. He's interested in how you're giving it. That's what we see with Cain and Abel. It's what we see later in the Gospels when Jesus watches the, the people. It says he, he sat at the front of the temple as they came and give. And in this story where he's where he's watching these people give in those days because they had gotten very religious with their giving. They actually had this large cistern type thing that had a really like big mouth to it, but a very small hole. It's almost like those uh, Salvation Army things where you know you roll the, the quarter down and it just was like, anybody do those? I love those things. It, it almost is like that. And so the, the people would come and the money of the day was not usually notes, it was 
some sort of metal product. And so they, the rich people would come and they'd throw it against this large mouth thing and it would make a ridiculous amount of noise. And they did it purposely. They wanted everyone to hear, look at how I'm giving. Clang, 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 and make all this noise come in. And so Jesus sat there and he watched as the people gave. And then this woman comes up, it says this poor widow comes up and it says she gives two mites, which is like almost nothing. She throws it in and it would have made very little noise in the world. But yet Jesus says, this woman has given more than everyone else. Now, if you're doing math, it doesn't work. But if you're looking at the reality of what God is looking for when it comes to giving, she gave more than everyone else. It didn't make much noise in the real world, but it made a lot of noise in the kingdom. This is the heart behind this idea of tithing and giving, this heart between behind what we're supposed to be doing when we come and present an offering to God. Because God isn't looking at whether you equaled out some sort of dollar amount. He's actually just looking at how is this person giving? Are they giving the first? Are they giving the best of their life? Or, or is it just the leftovers? Or is it just what, what's easy? Is it just you know, what they feel they have to do so that they think they're in good standing with me? Is it just because they think they're going to get something out of the coin machine if they do this? The motivation of this is what matters to God more than the amount. We see this throughout these stories. And so we see this idea, you know, I wrote in your notes. It says, God doesn't want a certain portion. So those of us who are maybe even stuck on tithing as some sort of law system, you've got to get that out of your brain too because any time that we live in an idea of a law system, it breaks down the reality that God just wants a relationship with us. You know what my wife doesn't have to ask of me? To give her 10% of my income. Why? Because I love her. Because I love her so much, she, everything I have is already hers. This is the same thing that we're supposed to have with God. It's not like, oh, it's my duty, so I come home every, every paycheck, and I'm like, all right, babe, here's 10%. Hope I'm in good standing with you. I mean, doesn't that sound absurd? But that's almost sometimes how we approach God. We're like, oh God, I hope he's not mad. Here's 10%. But really, everything we have is already his. And, and this is just a practice in us remembering our relationship with him, remembering where our resource actually comes from. And so now I want to turn to Revelation. I have a quote in there uh, from Robert Morris. If you've ever heard of him, he does a lot of teaching on giving, generosity. It's really great stuff. Tithing isn't a law. It's an unchanging principle instituted by an unchanging God. I think that tithing produces something in us as a principle. Just like the effort of working out, which I don't do. But those that do, something in the investment of putting in comes back. It's this principle. If you do it, something's going to happen within you. It's the same idea, I think, with giving and tithing. So let's turn to Revelation now. I don't want to kind of open up this book. This will be the first time we're really jumping into it in this series. So let me just lay it out here real quick. Uh, Revelation 1, we're not going to read through this whole thing. But what takes place is John, 
uh, the disciple John has been exiled to an island um, because, you know, uh, the Roman government at the time, they arrested him. They basically threw him in a, a, a jail that is on an island. It's just a, a prison island. And he's there, and he, he writes while he's there, and this moment comes where he has basically a vision from God, this, this incredible vision. And in the vision, you know, he's got these inc- crazy things that take place. We're going to read through a bunch of Revelation throughout the next number of weeks, but you see these angels come to him. You see moment when Jesus comes to him and, and all of these kind of very symbolic things that take place. And at the beginning of this, this angel comes and basically says, we're gonna, I'm, we're gonna show you something, but John, you need to write it down. And you need to write it down for the church, for the world. And so there's a lot of symbolism that takes place, and I'm not gonna hit a lot in chapter one, but that's where we're at. Chapter one is just these angel, this angel speaking to John, declaring to him, write this down, be ready for this, and now we're gonna share some thoughts with you, and we're gonna get to chapter two. And I'm just gonna read really the first little part in chapter two. So, and this is, uh, this is basically, he's being told, write this letter, verse 1, chapter 2 of Revelation. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is a message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. A lot of symbolism there we don't need to get into today. It says, verse 2, it says this, I know all the things you do. This is, just so you know, this is Jesus speaking. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. I just want to stop for a second. If Jesus was writing us a letter, this would be the part where I would start to freak out. And, and I'll just be honest, when I think about all the decisions we make as a church, when I think about all the decisions I make in my life as an individual, it's thoughts like this that make me realize or, or kind of drive my motivation. Because what I don't want is Jesus to say, Greg, you did a great job, but I have a complaint against you. I, I certainly don't want to hear those words. But yet we see that these letters that are going to be written to the churches, Jesus is admonishing them and encouraging them and even thanking them in places, but he's also bringing this truth to them. And part of why we're reading it now, even in this day, before Revelation really has fully taken place, is so that we don't fall into the same traps. So that we don't don't become this part of the church of Ephesus where he says, but I have a complaint against you. Verse 4, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. Stop there. Now, what's interesting in this, when I read it, is it doesn't say you don't love me, period. It says you don't love me and each other as you did at first. Now, how many of us in here have been in a relationship with someone else, a significant other, whether it even was a spouse or is a spouse or someone you dated for a long time? 
isn't there a place where when you first start, it's, it feels different, right? There's this place where I, I think we've seen it in many marriages, right? You, you're dating that person and you're in love with them and you're falling in love in a sense and you're doing all these wonderful things for them and you're thinking about them. You're waking up in the morning, you're not thinking about yourself, you're just thinking about them. And, you, and you're kind of like focused on this outward sense to this other person. There's this incredible amount of love that flows out. But then you get married and, and you have kids and they're distracting and you're tired and they're noisy and 10 years goes by and you start to go, when's the last time I did anything special for my spouse or my wife or my husband? You start to realize that you know, I, I heard this in a conference we had here that you're living more side by side than face to face. It's not that you don't love the person anymore, but something has happened that has caused you to become distracted from how you loved them at first. Can anybody say, and just admit to yourselves, you don't have to raise your hand, I think I've probably done that before. And the same thing can happen with us with God. It's like we have this experience. Maybe we're in this super desperate place in life and, and it's difficult and we come to church or someone invites us to their house and tells us about the goodness of Jesus and we meet him and there's this incredible moment with God and it's like we're pursuing him but then something happens in life and you just find yourself sitting in church sing, singing the songs because you've got them memorized but the words aren't going anywhere falling asleep while Greg speaks. Maybe you just find yourself not even coming to church and not trying to be too mean about it, but you just sit at home and watch now. Or maybe just sitting at home and watching is now just like I could go outside. It's a nice day today. And, and all of a sudden, the love that we had for Jesus isn't gone, but it's somehow become cold. I think that we're all in danger of Jesus saying these same, word, same words to us. He says, the, you don't love me the same way you loved me at first. And, and I think about this, and I, I read these kinds of things, and this is, what, this is what makes me realize Christianity has nothing to do with the religious duties we've made it about. Like this is the end of time. And Jesus thanks them even for a bunch of the religious things they've done, but yet something is almost hurting Jesus' heart, his heart as he speaks to them. He says, but you kind of aren't loving me very good. This is, this is the capture. This is what God has been doing even since Genesis. It's why we started there because we see God, he creates humanity and we're in this garden, we're in this perfect relationship with him and then course, we decide to go our own way and things go awry. And for thousands of years now, he's been trying to pull us back into this relationship with him, this relationship where the God of the universe wants to know us and for us to know him intimately. And he's really just challenging us, please, I just, I just want you to love me like you did maybe at first. And for some of us, we haven't even started the first. God's not interested in all of the do's and the don'ts and the rights and the wrongs. Those things are secondary to coming into this place where we actually fall in love with the God of the universe. Acting right towards my wife isn't my goal. Loving her is my goal, and then usually I act right towards her. But sometimes we try to put that first when it comes to God. Like, oh, I'll just, 
I just got to stop all of these things. These are all the sins of the world, so I got to stop sinning, and then I'll be good. But really, Jesus is just saying, hey, how about, hey, how about, we, uh, how about we just talk? How about you just hear my heart for you? How about you just let me release my goodness over you? How about you understand what my heart is for you and for humanity? If you do that, you'll, you'll be pulled into this relationship. And this is the complaint that Jesus has against the church of Ephesus at the time. He's, he says, you've forgotten. Love me like you did before. I want to turn out to Matthew 6 and more of Jesus' words. And some of you are like, is this a completely different message from the beginning? But it's not because we're going to get to this spot here in Matthew 6. This is Jesus and he's speaking. And, uh, and actually, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of getting near the end of that sermon part. This is verse 19 through 33. I want to read this all. So Jesus is speaking. He says this, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and dust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. There the desires of your heart will be also. He's talking about treasure. And even in that time, there's this, there's this kind of fight and tension between, between this idea of storing up something that has heavenly, eternal significance and then something that's just earthly and will fade away. 22, he says, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. For you'll hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I find this really interesting because we see this moment where Jesus is getting really heavy with his words. He's talking about darkness and deception and, and, and all these things and talking about serving two masters. And then the thing that God picks, that Jesus picks to literally be the antithesis of what fights for our love is money. He says you can't serve two masters, but then he actually, he defines what the master is that's fighting for our attention. He says you can't serve both God and money. And I, I've read this before and always thought, man, why did Jesus pick money? Why, why is that the biggest thing that he seems to think is what we're going to be driving after instead of him? And when I think about this and I read about this, and really the word money there, it's not actually means just money in the way we think. It means resource. Basically, God's saying, whatever you're going to for resource other than me, that's going to become your master. Now, in 2022, and, and in most of the translations here, why they say money is because money is the resource of the world. It's what you go to work for every day. It's what you check in your bank account. It's what you pay for when you get gas. 
It's what you use to live off when you retire. There's this place where money becomes the resource of the world. It's what we trade and how we live and how we survive. And it's not that money's bad, but that if we become servants to that money, it actually replaces God for us. That's what he's saying. And so when I read this, the, 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 the kind of complaint from Jesus in Revelation when he says, you haven't loved me the way you firstly return to your first love. I think that sometimes we replace the love of God that we might have for him with something else. And sometimes, and it seems very often, it can just be resource, money. And this is what money and resource really, really means to us. Trust. It's where we place our trust. I go to the gas station and I put my debit card in most of the time and trust that it's going to work. Everybody ever bought something and it doesn't work, gets declined, and you realize you have no money in your account, and then you're like making some excuse, oh, this stupid card, it always does that. <laughs> no, I just don't have any money. But we put our trust in it, right? I know that next week I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to be starving to death because I have money to buy food so that I can eat. And it's not that that's wrong because it is still the way the world works. But when our trust becomes placed in that thing more than Jesus, then all of a sudden we've switched masters. We've become distracted. It isn't that we still don't love Jesus over here, but yet somehow we've gotten away from our first love. And so though money is a difficult topic, the reality is we have to, we have to vigilantly realize that resource money and the trust and value we place in it can easily compete with God's love in our heart. And this is where, just going back to tithing for a second, I think tithing is just this principle and practice for me to constantly say, okay, I, I could really use this money somewhere else, but I'm going to give it to God because he is my provider. Keep reading in Matthew 6 or even a few chapters later where he just talks about don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you eat. Even, even the, the sparrows of the fields are clothed. Even they have nests. How much more does God love his children? Jesus is reassuring the people, like, listen, don't worry about those things in life. Don't put all of your weight and worry in those types of things. God's going to take care of you. But you have to practice and literally learn how to put our trust back in him. And if, and if you're like me, it's a daily practice. Daily, I have to remind myself, God's going to come through. Jesus is going to work this situation out. God's going to provide for me. He's going to take care of us. Doesn't feel very good right now, or I'm in a difficult situation right now, or this is happening, but I know God is going to take care of us. It doesn't always happen like we want. When you buy that $2 Mega Millions ticket and you don't win the $1.28 billion, it doesn't always happen like you want. But Jesus takes care of us. God takes care of us. And it's not because we have this kind of exchange system with the God of the universe, like, here, I'll give you a little something and you give me a little something. That's not relationship. What God's asking for is for us to put our whole heart, our whole lives, and our whole trust in him. For us to practice in life putting our faith and our understanding of provision in him. And then when we get to 
the end of this whole thing, when Revelation even starts to play out, that I would hope Jesus comes and, and doesn't look at us and say, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me the same as you used to. Those aren't the words I want to hear from him. I don't think any of us want to hear those words. Why don't we stand this morning? Now we're going to do communion together in just a moment. Justin's going to come up and do that part. But I want to pray for you to be challenged a little bit this morning to just say, where is my trust placed? Who in this life holds my trust more than anything else or anyone else? And if the answer isn't Jesus, it doesn't just have to be money. It can be other things you're putting your trust in. If it isn't Jesus first, I would just challenge you. Ask him to help you refocus on him. Ask him to help you to be reminded. Ask him to help you to draw your heart back to him. I'm just going to pray for us. Justin's going to come up and we'll do communion. Jesus, we thank you for what you're doing in every one of our hearts. God, we thank you that you're reaching for all people. Right now, almost 8 billion people on the planet, you're reaching for every soul, every heart. God, you're drawing them back to you. God, I pray right now that even in this place that you draw our hearts back to you, even maybe those of us who would say we, we know you, but maybe it's just kind of gotten mundane or routine or our hearts kind of grown cold. God, let us somehow press in to knowing you more, to, to loving you like we did before. But maybe there's some of us in this room, God, that we would say, I, I don't even know you at all, Jesus. I, I don't even understand this love for you. I don't know what you did on the cross, God. I pray right now that something would penetrate our hearts in that way. If you're in your room, in this room and or online and that's you, in a moment, just with some simple words, you can begin a relationship with the God of this universe just have to say, Jesus, I need you. We sang it this morning. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I don't want to do it my own way anymore. I receive this gift of grace you have for me. And in a moment, God comes into our lives. So God, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. We thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. We ask you, help us to place our trust in you above everything else. In Jesus' name. As we ponder these words, the worship team is going to play a song and have some people that are going to help distribute the elements and come up and, and prepare the tables. Um, but as, as we ponder these words and, and we just reflect on, on what Greg just shared and this idea of returning to our first love or maybe coming to Jesus for the first time even this morning, um, we're going we're gonna to come to the table. And this is something that Christians have done for, for thousands of years. And we're going we're gonna to celebrate it today. I just invite you just to come. There's tables in the front. There's tables in the back. Um, grab a, a, a cup and a piece of bread and then go back to your seats. And we'll take that together. We'll, we'll read a couple scriptures together and go through that together. But um, just as, as the band plays and as we, as we engage in this song, um, just ponder those, these, this message that Greg has shared of coming back to Jesus and putting him at the center and 
coming to the altar as we're going to sing and, and just remembering that love that God has for you and remembering that love that you first had or maybe maybe you that you're leaning into for the very first time this morning. Let's let's do that together, amen? So we're going to sing, God, come and grab my and I'll be right back. I heard him broken within Overwhelmed by the weight of sin Jesus is calling Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was born. The precious blood of Jesus Leave behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Cause Jesus is calling sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide forgiveness was born precious blood of Jesus Christ oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ Come on, every voice, declare this. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. So bow down before.
that we typically read when we come to the table. And we don't usually read some of the verses that come before, but I feel to read that. Well, it'll make sense in a second. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul is writing a letter to a different city, to a different church, to the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth. And he's saying, but the, in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together are harsh words. First, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. I'm going to jump down to verse 20. He says, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some get hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Don't you, or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. And he's calling, he's calling them out. <laughs> and in a lot of these letters that Paul writes and the letters that John writes in, in Revelation, he's calling us out. He's saying, we need a course correct. And, and we, when, we, when we do this, when we come to the table and we reflect on Jesus' body broken and his blood poured out for us and the incredible love that God showed us in his son Jesus and in his sacrifice on the cross and we remember that and we reapply that and we try to live that and that's why Paul says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself that on the night when he was betrayed the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying the cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And again, it isn't a form. It isn't a ritual it isn't something that we just do. We do this to remember Christ, and we do this to show Christ, and we don't just do this, drink this cup, and, and eat this bread because it's something that we're supposed to do, but we actually break our hearts and break our lives as Jesus did for others. That we're, we're, we're even here in this morning worshiping, not just for us, but for each other for those who don't yet know God, for those who are far from God, maybe for those who have wandered away from God, for those who need, who need encouragement, for those who need love. Maybe you need love this morning. Maybe you need encouragement this morning. Maybe you need to return to God this morning. And so we do this to remember, to return to our first love and to show others the way as well. And so as Paul says on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he, he's telling us just in a few short hours in the, in the next day, Jesus is gonna, his body is gonna be broken, his blood is gonna be poured out as he demonstrates the extent of his love for you and me and every person on the planet. And so 
encourage you to take this cup and remember what Christ did, that his, his, his blood was poured out. I think I'm doing it backwards, but yeah. Yeah, but it, it's harder when, <laughs> there's a reason why they do it. <laughs> let's, take the, let's take the bread. <laughs> That's why I'm supposed to read it. <laughs> let's take the bread and remember. Jesus gave everything for you. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. Let's remember that as we take the cup this morning. As we remember this, as we go from this moment, as we strive to do this in each and every day of our lives, may you be blessed. May you return to your first love and may you share that love with others. God, we thank you that we can be together, that we can be reminded of, of you, our first love, that we can be reminded of all that you've done for us, but not just for us, but for everyone around us as we pour out ourselves for the world. God, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you that we get to be, we get to be a part of it, and we thank you that we get to do it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed. Have a great week. Love each other, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.